In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous. But the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain coals. Fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. All right. Well, how's everyone doing tonight? So good to see all of you. All right, friends. Well, we are jumping into Genesis chapter 40 um, today, and we are continuing uh, in the narrative of Joseph. And, um, you know, the narrative of of Joseph um, is, is a very straightforward narrative, but we, we have to always keep in mind that, that there is, um, that the children of Israel uh, are being given their own cosmology, their own history, their own understanding of, of the, the true God, the creator God, Yahweh. Um, and Genesis is meant to lay down that, that foundational work which will be, um, which will set in motion the motifs that are found through the entire Old Testament. And even for us as Christians, they are motifs that are found throughout the entire um, uh, proclamation of Scripture. And one of the things that Joseph uh, is um, a picture of, uh, if you think about the parallels of the life of Joseph um, in Egypt, and what is one of the, the marks, even in the beginning of the book, what's one of the key ideas that is really established in the story of Joseph, um, almost more in depth than in any other story thus far in Genesis, um, as we move to the end, and that's the, the, um, the picture of God's providence, or his ability to accomplish his purposes uh, through someone's life and even through an empire that, um, that he is ultimately the storyteller who does have control of the story. But as we consider today, um, God's grieving over creation uh, and the grieving over the sinfulness and the wickedness of men before the deluge, uh, the great flood, um, that God has also given a um, permission, if you will, to in his creative um, genius, uh, he puts creation into motion and there's all this pathos and emotion and in, in goodness in what God has created and he takes delight in it um, and he blesses it and he creates a certain level of freedom for the created world uh, within those parameters. And so what's, his, what's the proclamation? The Lord spoke. So there's his sovereignty, the power, his ability to speak into existence that which was not. Um, but then he blesses and he says, be fruitful, 
and multiply the living things he blesses and there is he puts into motion um, so it's a God who creates and creates the parameters and the rules by which creation exists but he also creates a certain level of freedom and one of the most heartbreaking aspects um, as we consider today is we look at the the tragedy of of the decreation that comes through the flood um, when it's far less about um, about the revolt of the creation and far more about the heartbreak of the creator. Uh, and, but in Joseph's story, there's, this is always the balance um, that you have in scripture, which is human responsibility um, and divine sovereignty, God's control of providence, God's control of a, of a narrative. How does, it, how does it work? Which one is it? Is it, is it is it human responsibility or is it God's providence over human history? And the answer is what? Yes, that's, that's what it is. Uh, both are there and both are always in tension um, in the scripture. We have to be very careful uh, that God's providence can never mean God is ultimately responsible for all that happens. That is God, we can never allow God to be responsible for evil. What God permits and what God wills are very different things. Um, that he wills that all people turn to him in faith. He takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked, but there is a certain level of freedom um, and, it, and keep in mind, when I talk about freedom, I'm talking about freedom within parent. I think all true freedom, with the exception of the freedom of God himself, um, and even God's freedom is still confined by the parameters of his character and his purpose and his plans. Um, for us, it's confined by the parameters that God himself places on his creation, we being a part of that creation. Um, but we can never make God responsible for the bad decisions, but that doesn't mean that God can't intervene if he wants to. It doesn't mean that God can't repurpose and reutilize even things that um, on the surface seem evil or are evil uh, in terms of something that someone else does. God has the ability to take something that is intended for evil and bring about good, which is how the story of Joseph um, culminates when the, his brothers finally discover that he's alive what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Um, another thing that, that, that is a big part of the Joseph narrative um, is not just um, Joseph, uh, we shouldn't think of Joseph in terms of just purely um, uh, as some kind of prophet because dreams have a big part in the Joseph narrative, a really big part. And the, the big aspect is that God is, God's, God is the one who is the controller um, or the one who is, God alone knows, uh, knows the future and God alone knows his purposes and plans and God alone is able to fulfill those things and can use anything he wants to do it. Um, however, uh, there's also another aspect of Joseph's character. Joseph, a prophet, is one who speaks the word of God. He, he can't help but speak the word of God. Um, I don't believe that Joseph's dreams um, when it came to what he shared with his brothers uh, was necessarily, um, they were prophetic dreams, 
but his um, actions were not necessarily the actions of a prophet in that moment. His actions were the actions of an impulsive young man who was super pumped about a really exciting dream that made his brothers look dumb and him look awesome. Um, and so, so there is this incredible um, trajectory of growth that comes through the pressure cooker of suffering. Um, and what Joseph becomes the ultimate emblem of, I think even over um, the, the prophetic element that is throughout his, throughout his life is actually he is wisdom personified. Um, there, is, there is this, um, and, and I just want to take note of the things that, that Joseph doesn't just speak the word of God, but is immediately actually placed into power by Pharaoh. Um, and so this, this reality of, of wisdom um, actually being a huge component of his character, that he actually has what Paul would refer to as the spiritual gift, and it seems to be almost a supernatural gift of administration. Um, and we always underplay it. Door of Hope, I, when, the, when the founding pastor um, is, and Brett will understand this well, when the founding pastor is a, is a, is a true, you know, I like to refer to myself as a, a lowbrow renaissance man, um, which is just another way of saying I, like most Americans, have severe ADHD. When you don't have, uh, um, when you don't have strong administrative skills, it's like, you know, often administrators in a church are like, paid pennies in comparison to the pastoral staff. We, we don't do that at Dwarf Hope because uh, the administrative staff are in some ways more crucial. Uh, and, I, and what I think is that, that there is as much pastoral um, uh, care in often the administration. There's often pastoral um, uh, work done in the, in the gifting of administrative work um, done even toward me for all the administrators that I've had that have worked alongside me, they've carried massive burdens that I would refer to as pastoral in quality. Um, but we, I think we underappreciate what seem like um, overly logical or rational gifts. Like someone's just super smart and they're, they're organized. That, and we, like that's not an extraordinary thing. If you're an unorganized person, that's an extraordinary thing. To me, that's an extraordinary thing. It's amazing to me what Chelsea is capable of, of carrying um, in, the, the church wouldn't run without her. Uh, and now we have Tate, who's also that, but they are also extremely pastoral. So I think that there's these, we, we kind of miss the supernatural component of how gifted Joseph has been by God to be a man for the moment, a man of the time, a man that not only will ultimately bring um, uh, um, protection and uh, to God's promise to Abraham that through his seed all nations will be blessed. Um, blessed. Joseph becomes the, the one who protects Abraham's line from being snuffed out due to famine, which is nobody's fault other than all of creation groans awaiting its, its redemption. And at the same time, uh, Joseph also becomes a conduit and reminds us that God's redemptive purposes is not just for Israel, um, but he is a God who blesses his creation even a kingdom like Egypt. So I, there's just so many layers to this, but I just, I just wanna establish this, that, that this is a very straightforward narrative. It's one of those one, lovely moments where it doesn't require a tremendous amount of, of you know, like I, it's not like reading Ezekiel, where you're just like, I don't know what's happening. Um, you're like, it's just, it, but there is this undercurrent of what I referred to this morning of like, 
the mystery of the unseen realm at play. I mean, three times already it is said, and God was with Joseph. And that these are, this is to remind you that what you are reading is not just a straightforward narrative, um, but that there is a divine reality behind it. Um, and I just want you to know that that same divine reality is behind your life as well. Um, and our lives are far more miraculous than we think. And sometimes we forget that God may be behind the things that seem the most ordinary about us, but they might be the thing that God uses the most powerfully to bless others. That's my point. It was a good sermon point. I didn't even prepare that. It just came to me just now. All right. Thank you, Jesus, for carrying the scattered mind through the day. Um, I had a long elder meeting today, so I was just church, spiritual warfare. Satan tried to shut down the service this morning, but my voice is louder than that. Um, and, and then elder meeting, and now here we are. So, and this is the gift of the Lord's day. <laughs> Let's begin. Chapter 40, um, verse 1. Sometime after this, the cupbearer, remember Joseph has just been <laughs> pretty tragic, faithful in Potiphar's house. Uh, this is not a story about... Um, a man who um, figured out how to conquer lust. I love we to turn it into a, Joseph is, is a man who's just faithful with what's given. It's not what he had time for, it's not, but he's not a man that's devoid of passions. Um, but he has a strong sense, wisdom, um, true wisdom is truth, truth known and applied. And what we see in Joseph, that's why I say he's an emblem of wisdom, because Joseph, many men would know this is wrong, but not every man would apply that, the truth um, if put in a situation where a beautiful woman and you're a single young man flings herself at you. Um, Joseph shows what wisdom is. It's not just knowledge understood, it's knowledge applied. So uh, that's very, and, and that's just gonna be consistent with this character. But now he's imprisoned. So he is suffering for doing the right thing. That's a, what, a, what an enigma. Um, Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against the lord of the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers and the chief cupbearer and the chief baker and the candlestick maker. No, I'm sorry. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with him and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed Here's the dreams, and the dreams are within the context of the larger dream, the dream of Joseph, um, who was excited by a dream of, of um, his brothers bowing down to him. What he doesn't understand is, is that dream was a dream that God planted in his heart to show that, that God had not forgotten his covenant with, with Abraham. In the wind night, they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. I think this is a significant statement that Joseph is introducing to, um, to pagan men um, in, a, in a polytheistic culture um, that there is one true God 
and that God alone knows the future. Um, and Joseph also is confident. This, this is a picture, humility is beginning to be, this is not a proud statement. What may have been a brash statement, I don't even know if it was pride um, for Joseph when he brought the vision to his brothers. It was just a lack of, uh, it's like, it's like he had Tourette's, like, you know, just, you're not thinking about what you're saying. You just, you just blurt it out. I don't think he was trying, I don't think, Joseph has never presented himself as a proud, as a proud young man, just like maybe lacking, um, uh, and this very much is in line with the prophet. Prophets aren't, uh, aren't necessarily known for their couth. <laughs> like they're not, they're not, uh, they're not necessarily the guys who are going to have the best manners at the tail. They just kind of, they're 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 always a little bit unpredictable and un, unhinged, uh, and uh, I, I, I relate to that. That's I feel like my kids are always terrified every time we go out together, um, because of what Dad might say. I'm not saying I'm a prophet, but I'd like to have a positive interpretation of why I have that effect on them. <laughs> um, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. The humility. This gives us a picture of what real humility is. Humility is not um, what, I refer to, what I refer to as false humility, which is like, oh, it's not me. It's not, you know, it's like almost doubt, like the downplaying, like being, uh, being overly self-conscious about some way that God has gifted you. Real humility is, is an understanding of who God's made you to be, and, and it is surrendered to him that I don't want to be anything more or less than God who you called me to be. And I'm not worried what you've called anyone else to be. And it's that, you know, the person that I have always said is a definition of humility for me is, um, is Tim Mackey. Um, Tim is unbelievably aware of his unique gift of understanding Old Testament and his gift in his weird, freakish gift of languages. Language is really easy for him. Uh, and he recognized that. And, but it's completely, it's completely without any ego. In fact, he's distrustful of anything that elevates him. It's just like, this is how God wired me and I'm willing to put it to its absolute fullest use as possible to, and, and he loves it. So I think that humility is often, is often marked by a strong confidence combined with almost a childlike wonder um, as, as one functions. It's, it's without guile. It's just like a, it's just who I am. That's what I do. I don't know. I'm not going to apologize for it. And I'm not going to pretend it's to be uh, self-deprecating because I have it. It's just who God has made me to be. And it's his. So, and I think I see that in Joseph, even in this, in this statement. So I like this. It's God's interpretation. Please tell me. So there's two things he's saying here. God alone brings interpretation, but he does it through human conduct. I, I am comfortable saying to you, that I can receive from God what this dream means. Um, so there's a, what is it, what does Joseph enter into in Hebrews? The hall of faith. This is a picture of, of, of what real faith is. It is a dependence upon God to be in us and through us what we cannot be for ourselves. So really, I, it's, a very, it's a very simple but profound statement. So the chief cup bear, bearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream there was a vine before me and on the vine there were three branches as soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. 
The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream, and there were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. What a bad day for that guy. Um, <laughs> You know, there would have to be denial. That's the whole thing with the predictions of future. And he's just hoping, like, I hope the first dream doesn't come true, and then I might be in the clear. But this is a very, uh, this is a very stressful, uh, stressful. Day. And notice, uh, he does not ask this guy uh, to remember him. Uh, because <laughs> I, I just now noticed that. Like, yeah, there's just no point. You're going to be dead. You're not going to, if it comes true, you will not be able to help me. <laughs> so, um, on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Forgot him. After two whole years, so Joseph's been serving in prison for two years. And notice, and I think, once again, wisdom applied is that Joseph makes the best of every situation. Reminds me very much, if you guys have ever read Brother Lawrence's um, uh, Practicing the Presence of God, you know, Lawrence is key to understanding how to live a life that's marked by joy. It's just whatever's before you, just do it unto the Lord. Do it. That, that what makes life actually livable is not where I am, um, but... Um, am I with the God who made me? And, uh, and that's a, a very um, profound way to live. Um, I remember once uh, speaking to a group of women in prison in Russia, um, in uh, the city of Razan, and it was, a, um, it was a penitentiary where most of these women were going to live out life sentences for murder. Um, and it was so... Um, I, I was so overwhelmed with, um, I mean, I felt claustrophobic for these girls. And, and it was so interesting to see the women that had, it's amazing how the human spirit um, can acclimate to unbearable situations. Um, and it was very clear to see who the women were in there that had been there for enough time that they had adjusted to this new reality. This is, you know, with the famous, uh, saying around neurosciences, all we know is all there is. And there are women that they seemed at ease where they were, even though it's a terrible living situation. But then there's the new girls, and you could tell because they all looked terrified, like terrified. And it was so interesting to be able to have to preach the gospel in that, that prison. And I remember the Lord just put on my heart that it is possible for a woman to meet me in here and be more free than some people who have everything in the world at their disposal. 
Um, and because uh, we don't realize the prisons that we can find ourselves in, even in our own heads. Um, nothing actually has been more terrifying or claustrophobic to me than uh, the year that I struggled with mental health issues and had severe anxiety. Nothing felt like a prison, um, like this, the sense that something was terribly wrong without ever being able to put my finger on what it was. That's a terrifying reality. Um, I think that what Joseph reminds me is it's possible to have freedom in any situation if, if God is at the center um, of our lives. But it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Um, and, uh, and I remember that year well. It was a terrifying year, but there was also a sense that God was still in this place. And I just had trouble sometimes knowing it, <laughs> if I could borrow from the words of Jacob. But I think about this, no, just, that's just two, two years have just passed in a single sentence. That's a long time in prison. It's a long time. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven, did I just skip anything? No, no, I didn't. Okay, good. Um, that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Uh, I do think it's interesting that these dreams... Um, seem far more straightforward than the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. Um, but nonetheless, uh, they still, there was no one to interpret them because one of the theological truths that the writer is helping us understand is that only God truly knows the future. I mean, that's the, one of the, you know, so a lot of people go to Go, you know, you see, you see them all over Portland. The Portland is a new age city. Everybody wants to know the future, but do we really want to know the future? Uh, and I, I, I like that Jesus never told, uh, he told the disciples the future of, of uh, what was going to happen to him. But when it came to them, all he said to them was just follow me. Because <laughs> that's what was important. Not where they were going to end up, but just follow me. Um, and I, I think that this is a, um, this is a, a, a purpose actually in the writer is to establish that Yahweh alone holds the, holds that we're called to trust him with our future. Um, and so what, what do we have? Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with the servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, 
I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, and here once again, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as, as at the beginning. And then I awoke. Also I saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by the reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over all the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that they are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine." Now, I want you guys to notice that there are two things going on here. There is the interpretation of the dream um, that, that has come from God. Uh, and Joseph um, is showing Pharaoh that God alone knows the future, but also that God, God is still in control of his creation. Um, the question around God causing a famine, God causing good and plenty. It is the, the idea that um, we cannot take credit for things, that God is the ultimate sovereign, that he is, he is the God who has the free alone. And when I say sovereignty, I mean that God is free to do what he wants in accordance to his purposes and his plans. Um, but it is in accordance with his character. Also, scripture, um, it, it is a, um, it is a, I think a confusing thing at times when it talks about God's um, usage of something, like for example, um, in Isaiah, um, when it says that um, Isaiah 45, Cyrus, um, the king of Persia, is referred to as God's anointed one, uh, which is really fascinating because Cyrus is an evil king who 
basically conquers conquers entire nations. You know, it's like it, the Persian Empire is a massive, uh, like Babylon, Persian, the Persian Empire, the the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire. These are conquering nations, and they were they were devastating in in their their conquering. So, did God make Cyrus do those things? I think that the way to um, to think through these things is that God God utilizes uh, the actions of Cyrus and and I, what I always say is that God can God can take um, something that someone does that's even bad and he can repurpose it and bring good out of it and his purposes without being responsible for the bad and that is a that's a profound thing the way I always look at it is it's a, it if you think of a, a um, a piece of music, a bat, like a, a, a dissonant note is entered into that piece of music that seems to threaten the composition. Um, but a good composer can utilize dissonance to build tension and then weave that into a new, another movement. Um, and I think that that is a, a, a powerful way in which God can, instead of making God responsible for everything that happens, it, um, it allows God to be the true conductor um, that can weave everything um, and everything ultimately can serve um, his good plans and purposes. Um, he is the one who holds the keys of life and death. Um, and I think that it's important to know that um, that, that is an aspect of, of, um, of God that even when Satan, who is a murderer and a liar, functions, this is what Luther meant when he said, and even Satan is still the Lord's Satan. That is that he is still functioning under what are defined parameters by the God who is in, ultimately in control of everything. So a, there are layers of theological mystery here um, that, um, that have to be held in tension. He says these, these things are determined, but notice here that combined that God's years of plenty, years of famine, God is in control of the seasons. He's in control of what's going, to, what the land's going to produce, and what it isn't. Um, but He also tells them through Joseph. God is also His mercy is at play here, um, and His protection and His providence. Um, and this shows the mysteries of why it's a dangerous thing to try to read um, too much into. Um, you know, it's when Job wants to know why he's suffering, and what does God say to him? Yeah, let me ask you some questions. He doesn't give him an answer. Because he doesn't have to. Because he alone is free and he's God. And he says, were you there when I created? And what does Job say? My ears have heard of you. My mouth has spoken of you. But now my eyes have seen you. And I, and I tremble. I tremble at your holiness. There's, a, there is a, there's this powerful surrender which is what God is always looking for, is, is implicit trust. Um, and I think that we don't ever understand the beginning from the end. Um, not even Joseph fully knows, like, the details of the bigger dream. Um, he is merely a mouthpiece of the dream as it's given to him because he trusts God and God speaks through him. But that's just one aspect. Then there's this other side of Joseph that God has uniquely hardwired Joseph, um, has gifted Joseph um, with incredible wisdom and insight and strategy and administration. Um, and so 
he doesn't, a lot of times prophets just simply proclaim the word of God. But Joseph not only proclaims God's word, but then actually lays out for Pharaoh what the solution should be. Um, and he doesn't, and, uh, and I think this is interesting because it begins by saying, this is what God has shown me that he's going to do. But then the second part of it is Joseph actually just functioning in his natural gifting that is also from God, which is Joseph knows what to do with the information. And that's a different kind of spiritual gift. It's one thing to just be a mouthpiece. It's a whole nother, uh, you know, I always say like, I, I'm, a, um, I'm a creative uh, and, uh, and, and I, I definitely have a visionary component of my temperament. However, I'm always impressed when I meet people that have the visionary aspect and the administrative ability to actually like accomplish it. It's like almost like an architecting kind of quality. I'm like, I'll create all day, but once it's created, I'm like, I don't know what to do with it. I don't know what to do with it. I'm just gonna make it. <laughs> I don't know what to do with it. Um, and I, I think that the beauty of why we are the body of Christ, I think this is why the church, you know, Joseph is like practically super, he's like a one-man show of like just, and, and I think, but that's kind of part of the, the power is that this, this, what seems like this nobody little Hebrew boy is like the salvation, not just for Israel, but for the entire surrounding nations um, because God has, God chooses the foolish things to confound the wise. Um, but it's a very, it's a very profound thing. He lays out um, wisdom personified. Wisdom is a big, wisdom literature and just uh, in the Hebrew understanding of what wisdom is, um, is, is very important. We think of wisdom as someone who just knows a lot. Um, uh, for the Hebrew um, mind, um, wisdom is something uh, that, is, that is not only known, but it, it must be lived. Um, George MacDonald, uh, one of my favorite, um, my favorite writers of all time, uh, he, Victorian writer, um, he once said, to know a truth, to live it and love it are all the same thing. You can't truly know a truth until it is also lived and loved. Um, and, I, um, and that may seem like an overstatement, but it, it's really not. Um, oh, I, I want to just point out three things about the dreams um, up to this point. What is the, the content of the dreams in the entire Joseph narrative? And there are, there are three things. Um, uh, first of all, um, they are marked by theology. Um, and, and the very definition of theology is that, um, or when I say they're theological, that is they give us insight into the nature of God. Theology is the science of God. How does God work in the world? Um, uh, we think of theology as, uh, there's a difference between a theologian and, um, and a, um, uh, I always say like, a th there's, there are Bible scholars and there are theologians. Theologians function far more like philosophers. They are primarily interested in the more abstract questions of God and nature and, um, and humanity. They're, they're, they're asking the difficult questions that scripture even, um, leave somewhat um, unanswered. They're trying to look to scripture uh, to, to find, to answer those bigger questions. Uh, and, and I would be more comfortable in the, in the world of theology than I am in textual 
criticism. Uh, so the, um, where Tim, I would say, is, is a guy who is, he's a languages. He's a, his genius is in language, in understanding the biblical text. Obviously, you have to have an understanding of biblical text and those things to be a theologian. And, um, and you have to have a little bit of theology. You have to have interest in theology to be um, a biblicist, <laughs> if you will. Um, but they are different. They are uh, different schools of thought and they are different focuses. That's why, you know, theologians often, uh, the, the downfall of theology is when they create systematic theologies, which is um, instead of letting scripture just speak for itself, it's trying to create a grid by which we can fit all the units of scripture into. That's what I think um, was the underbelly of Calvin's genius. Uh, his, his genius was that he allowed at times rationalism uh, in the beginnings of enlightenment to too deeply impact how he interpreted things. And then he was so committed to particular views um, on sovereignty where you get one wrong theological idea about God. If you turn sovereignty into the belief that God that that means that God has determined everything that is and everything that will be. Um, and then you just apply that carte blanche to the whole, the Bible, you're gonna end up with a God that is pretty unmoved by anything um, and human beings being reduced to mere robots in, a, in an already completely told, defined, buttoned up, neat and tidy story. Um, and what that has produced in, in his followers um, and the more extreme ones is the idea that God is in only interested in a very small group of people in human history um, who he's created to be covenant partners with him, not because of anything in them, but because he just chose them, handpicked a few, but that he created the vast majority of humanity throughout human history, including children, for the purpose of displaying his glory through hell um, and wrath. And I don't know, I just find that a little bleak. As an evangelist, that's a little bleak. Um, and I don't feel like you can be an honest preacher when you hold to that, that theory because, because you have to actually admit that the fact is, is that most of you sitting in this room, if I was to hold that view, is that high likelihood most of you are going to hell. And I'm sorry, there's nothing you can do about that because that's just what God created you for. Um, that is a horrible, uh, um, I find that an anathema, personally. Um, I'll go that far. And if you hold to that view, come talk to me. I'd like to, I'd like, I'd like to convince you otherwise. Um, but then again, uh, often I have found that those that hold that view, weirdly, are always the ones that seem to be in that very small group. It's a strange enigma. <laughs> so that is in the chosen group. So I, I, I think we need to understand that theology has its place, but it also has its limitations. But these dreams are meant to give us insight into who God is. Um, secondly, they are charismatic. Um, that is that there's, there is, they are proclaiming news. They are delivering divine, divinely um, giving uh, news about a situation that cannot be derived from the present or predicted. Um, so they're, they're, they're charismatic, charismatic in, its, in their, their content. And then, and then last, um, at least they're, escal they're as eschatological. Uh, they are they are pointing to future uh, future things, um, and this is 
this is a reality that is found throughout God's word, but they, they are these layers um, to, uh, to what is being told. And there is ultimately, in that eschatological reality, there is, they are ultimately pointing to something beyond even the story itself, which is back to the, the promise to the woman after the fall that through your seed, um, the serpent's head will be crushed and his heel will be struck, that there will be, that the blessing of the world will come to that seed. Ultimately, what God is doing is preserving that seed, <laughs> um, which is all about the redeeming of the world. And you see that at play. It's not just Israel that's blessed by these, by these words, but the surrounding people connected with God's people also find themselves blessed, which was always God's intention of the chosen people. And that's where I always say, election. God chose Israel to be a blessing to all nations. They failed in that mission. Um, and I think that this is, this is the logic of election being played out here. This proposal in verse 37 pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? I always find it interesting when pagan personalities are introduced to us and they recognize God in um, in the godly people because they're they worship what do they mean by that what is what does pharaoh mean by that um is 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 he recognizing the one true god or is he recognizing that there is clearly the spirit of a god um in joseph and you know the script the scripture doesn't declare but what it seems to be pointing to is that the reality and the revelation that he is dealing with the one true God seems to, it's, at least is hinting um, at this reality. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot and they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and with your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all land of Egypt. Notice, I, I want you to notice, um, it says, and Pharaoh called Joseph's name um, Zaphoneth Paneah and he gave him in marriage to Asnath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, um, which is one of their false gods or weird spiritual deities that might or might not be behind the power of Egypt. Uh, you know, kind of wonder like after today's message, if On is one of the, one of the, the principalities or, um, you know, I do believe that behind the idolatry of the pagan nations were real spiritual um, entities that are worshiped. Um, so Joseph went out, out over the land of Egypt. Do you, do you guys notice anything about the language of this paragraph when you just read it? Does it remind you of anything? Um, because isn't this very similar language to um, what like Pauline letters um, or think about Hebrews, uh, the way that in uh, Hebrews is a letter written to a church filled with Hebrew Christians who would have a very strong working knowledge of Old Testament. And what are the New Testament writers constantly doing? Showing exactly what Jesus said. If you knew the scriptures, 
you would know that they all speak of me. Um, because there's all this language in just this one paragraph of what Pharaoh says to him that is very similar to um, the father blessing the son as you shall, you shall basically be the exact, <laughs> the, the exact imprint of me. I shall robe you. I shall put all the signs of royalty upon you. Um, and after coming through all of this suffering and then the elevation of Joseph as a, as a savior, the, these are what we call in scripture typologies. There's, there are these, they're meant, it's not meant to be a perfect picture. There are obviously, um, pro, you can't say that Joseph is a perfect type of Christ and that um, Joseph is not the son of God. But what he is, is that these are, there are things that are meant to um, that, that the Spirit uses to remind us again and again that ultimately the Bible's all about Jesus. It's all, all of these stories. These are stories within stories that are meant to tell one story. Um, and I think that there is this, all this image. They, I love that they took a signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And today you shall be my son. And um, I, I love that. I think about all this language in the beginning of, of Hebrews that describes the elevation of Jesus after experiencing unbelievable suffering. Um, and Joseph becomes um, a, a source of salvation uh, for, um, for the, the many are represented here in the one. The one for the many and the many in the one. Um, and I think that there's, there's this powerful Jesus, Joseph, like Jesus, is... Um, is completely dependent um, upon God. He's always pointing to God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why do you ask me to show you the Father? Have, don't you believe that the Father and I are one? There's this, uh, this, Jesus is always modeling what it looks like to desire oneness with the Father, desire what it means to be intimate with the Father. Um, and Joseph um, shows us what it looks like to be a representation of God um, by continually, Jesus said, I only do those things which please the Father. I mean, I just think there's all these, these things that point toward a greater reality. And that's exactly what Hebrews said. All of these things are shadows um, uh, of the true substance, which is in Christ. And, and I think that that, I, I, I love this picture here. Joseph was 33 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Um, or excuse me, he was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and Joseph went out. Notice I just Im immediately added the age of Jesus when he died into that. Um, <laughs> he was 30 years old when he entered the service of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, and earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occupied in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. And before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, Asenath the daughter Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, 
go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. We're going to stop right there. And I want to ask you guys if you have any questions. Um, I, I think once again, notice all the earth comes to Joseph. God's, God's salvation plan uh, is, and I think it's one of those things too that I'm struck by of what is most important to God is not our comfort, but our holiness. Um, or I should say what is most important to God is not our happiness, um, but our holiness. I mean, happiness is a thing that ebbs and flows. Um, I think joy is something that is utterly unique um, uh, to the true joy is utterly unique to the Christian because it's because it is a, a joy that Jesus speaks of on the night of his own betrayal in the midst of all of the anguish um, knowing he's about to face what he's about to face and, he, and yet he's able to say these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Um, but I, I think the, the, the famine and for the mind of a person alive during that time um, like why would God why would God cause a famine why would he allow this thing to happen and, and this is one of those things like what if this is the introduction? You know, think about the, the reputation of, a, of Joseph, that there's one whom, who seems to truly have the spirit of God within him. Um, that is, that is, God is using the difficulty of human existence, a difficulty, by the way, that was brought on, um, brought into the world by sin. Uh, this is not God's doing, this is the outcome of, of a ground that has been cursed. And as it said in Genesis, I will curse the, let us curse the ground for, um, I will curse the ground for your sake. Um, I, that, that God does not intend for us to um, have the Garden of Eden in a fallen state because we would never see our need for him. The difficulty of existence now is one, is another means by which God is, God utilizes the challenges of life and that suffering to point us again and again back to himself. Um, and I think that that's a profound reality in here is that God's mercy, his provision, his protection, um, but also um, the things that he will, the mystery of what he will utilize to drive people to himself. And man, when you think about the length of time, that is a long stinking time to, um, to endure prison and uh, just all these things that Joseph, this journey that Joseph's, I, it shows me how unbelievably impatient we are um, in most things in life, in our current culture. Everything in our lives is instantaneous. Um, and I see, I see that the impatience of, of even of, of Christians. We don't know how to just, you know, I had this, um, I've always had this way because I do get so easily distracted by things. I had this little methodology that I kind of developed for my job when I became a Christian. I just wanted to be faithful. I didn't want to be flaky, and I wanted to get things done. And, I, and it started off when I started reading the Bible. I was very overwhelmed um, by reading a book a thousand pages long that's really, really old. And then I just realized that, that it was as simple as this premise, one page at a time. 
it's like, I, I like, why is that so hard? I mean, it's like, if you do one page at a time, eventually you're gonna read all thousand pages. It's like, it was like that simple. Like, oh, if I read five pages a day, I'm gonna get through it in this round. And I just started realizing like, I'm always so focused on the whole that I can't even begin the beginning. And I felt like the, the, that when I came to faith, the Lord began to show me, um, there's gonna be a lot of things in your life, Josh, you probably won't finish. But there are certain things that you need to learn how to finish. And these are the things that ultimately matter. Um, be an incessant dabbler, but be serious about this. <laughs> it was kind of what I felt like the Lord spoke to me. And I remember that I even had a painting company, my business card. Um, it just said, uh, Josh White Painting, beautifying the world one wall at a time. One wall at a time. Because I would paint these three-story Victorian houses in Seattle. And when you first saw the whole house, it's just completely overwhelming. It's like, I've got to grind all the paint off a three-story Victorian house down to bare wood with scaffolding by myself and then paint a four-color scheme. And, and I'm getting paid a lot of money to do this right. Um, and I would get overwhelmed and start having panic attacks. And then it was when I just reminded myself, all you can do is one wall at a time, man. <laughs> just like you start and eventually you'll finish. That's, that's the rule of thumb. I think that, that um, our inability to... Um, uh, to press through what seems like the impossibility of time, um, you know, or our attempts to escape time. Uh, I saw that with my dad. Like, time, I always say that time was not kind to him, and I wrote my book, but it wasn't time that wasn't kind to him. It was my dad that didn't take time seriously. Um, and, uh, and I think that we, all we have in these short lives that we live, and let me tell you, they go fast. Um, I, didn't, I don't feel like I'm 50 on the inside, but my back tells me that I am. Um, and so I, I think we don't realize how quickly it can go by. Um, and all the Lord is asking us to do is just be faithful right now, one day at a time, one moment at a time. Um, every day is a new day in Christ. And I think that Joseph's wisdom of like, God is with me and all I can do is the best that it is possible for me to do in this particular situation. Um, and all he could do was what was in prison. I mean, all he could do was what was right in front of him. And, and even there he excelled. And I think that that, that that should be one of the, I think the marks of wisdom um, is the, um, what's the, not acidia, um, acidia is indifference, which is a huge problem, um, but um, laziness, sloth, um, is, I think, sloth is often the outcome of not taking time seriously, um, putting off to tomorrow what should have been done yesterday. And I, I think that, that that is a problem that runs deep in our culture. And if that's, if that's you, I, I don't say that to make you feel guilty. I think that's one of the reasons why we need community and why we need one another. Um, because uh, uh, like we live in an age of procrastination, but it also is, I think, a massive anxiety-producing um, problem. How would Joseph endure such unbelievable suffering, removal from his family, imprisonment, is that is, is he learned that the key to um, enduring uh, existence and even thriving is just being faithful to what was right in front of him right now. I, don't, I mean, he lived out Jesus' words, do not worry about tomorrow, um, for sufficient are the problems of the day. Um, many of us need to learn that lesson. Uh, and, you know, God has a, 
God is unbelievably patient. Uh, yeah, he's got all the time in the world. We're the ones that don't. So, <laughs> and he'll give people time uh, to, uh, to learn that lesson. Um, and I don't think that there is any fast route to holiness. And I think that this is a picture that we see in the life of Joseph.